Wild Precious Life is brought to you in part by Story Studio Chicago, a writing center located in Chicago and online, which helps writers hone their craft, express their creativity, and tell their stories. Learn more and register at storystudio.org. And by the Ashland University Low Res MFA in Creative Writing, where accomplished faculty help you find your voice and complete your degree at your own pace. Learn more and enroll today at ashland.edu. I'm Anne-Marie Kelly. Welcome to Wild Precious Life, a podcast about dreaming big and making real connections. In each episode, I talk to prize-winning writers, musicians, and entrepreneurs who teach all of us how to make the most of the time we have. Have you ever been afraid of poetry? Maybe you were a kid who scrawled in a notebook or made sense of a breakup by putting it into verse. If so, I am glad for that. I'm envious of people for whom poetry came easily or as a comfort. I am not one of those people. As a high school student, poetry always stressed me out. There just wasn't enough there. So much blank space. And the feeling that there was some right answer I wasn't getting. I hated the way poems made me feel lost. I even tried again in college, but my interpretation of a poem differed from my teacher's, and that was the only time a professor ever made me cry. I just figured maybe poetry wasn't for me. It's only since becoming an adult and a teacher myself that I have begun to let go of some of that fear. I have sought refuge in Maya Angelou and Mary Oliver. My Aunt Kathy is in a poetry group, and she sends me some of her favorite verses from time to time. I don't love everything about getting older. That creak in my right knee, or the way I sometimes can't think of a word I know I know. But I do love this. The way aging helps us confront old fears. We can shake hands with something that once haunted us, a person, an idea, a poem, and learn that it was never as scary as it once made us feel and that we are stronger and more capable now. For today's guest, writing poetry has been a journey into and out of her family history. Vanessa Angelica Villarreal was born in the Rio Grande Valley to Mexican immigrants. And though she often felt left out of the poetry world in her younger days, as an adult, she is blazing a trail, making her own rules, and frankly, kicking ass. We talk about breaking silences and rewriting the stories others have told about ourselves. Late in the interview, we also talk about art and why it's so important to share what we create with others. I thought of lines of a poem by Sean Thomas Doherty that I've seen recently floating around social media. It's called Why Bother from the second O of Sorrow. Why bother? Because right now, there is someone out there with a wound in the exact shape of your words. Whether you realize it or not, I suspect there is a wound inside of each one of us that a poem, maybe even one of Vanessa's poems, can help heal. We share our stories to tend one another's wounds. Vanessa's work does that. So Vanessa Angelica Villarreal is the author of the award-winning collection Beast Meridian and a recipient of the 2019 Whiting Award, among many other honors. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Harper's Bazaar, and Oxford American. She is a recipient of a 2021 National Endowment for the Arts Poetry Fellowship and a doctoral candidate 
at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, where she is working on a poetry and nonfiction collection while raising her son. Her next book, Chueca, will be published by Tiny Reparations in 2023. Vanessa Angelica Villarreal, welcome to Wild Precious Life. Thank you so much. I'm so thrilled to be here. It's lovely to have you. Vanessa, despite the fact that our podcast borrows its name from a poem, I think you're our first poet guest, which is, I guess, a little embarrassing, but mostly just exciting. (laughs) And I'm grateful that you're here. But for listeners who aren't yet fortunate enough to be acquainted with your life and work, I wonder if you could just tell us your story. The way I tell my story is, this is actually something that I've been interrogating with my mom. The way she tells her story, it's very much like the good immigrant narrative. Like she came here and she learned how to learn the language and worked really hard and, you know, bought bought her own house and made sure that we didn't grow up on the wrong side of town or like, you know, that she moved to like a place with good school districts. And I think she really is insistent that I not represent her as like this like long struggling figure because the women in our family, and this is something that I'm investigating in writing, you know, my poetry collection, my dissertation, the women in our family, especially along the maternal line, but really both lines, really struggled. Uh, My mom's side were indigenous cotton farmers and my grandmother, the one on the cover of the book, was basically sold into marriage against her will to a 36-year-old man at 14. Her brother had to come, like, save her and they ran away to Tampico and she married another man who basically prompted her escape to the United States. You know, I think we frame immigrants as like coming here for a better life, you know, as this like aspirational choice, but so often it's to escape state violence. It's to escape domestic violence. It's to, no one makes the choice to leave their country, (laughs) like if circumstances aren't dire. She came here alone and then my mother followed her two years after and they were undocumented. And that's not something that I understood until basically I was in graduate school. The process of writing this book and interrogating why I felt so different, you know, in the realms of academia, like why it was so difficult to even get my bachelor's degree, like what what the cultural divide has always been was such a mystery until I realized that like I grew up in a mixed status family and a lot of my family was undocumented and that that shaped our reality in ways that I'm still struggling to understand and there is this active effort on the part of family members to erase that part of themselves it's a it's a point of shame it's um something that they don't want to be associated with because it's so stigmatized and criminalized. So I have to be careful about how I tell my story. So my story is I was born in McAllen, Texas. I paint it in this way, but McAllen and and all of the Rio Grande Valley is just this place of just like incredible creativity and incredible like wittiness. And the culture is just so vibrant and that gets erased, you know, because of the poverty and because of the 
you know, the way it's portrayed in the news. I was raised in Houston. We moved to Houston because my, you know, grandmother could get free medical care at MD Anderson, which is like this research institute for cancer. And I lost her at 10 years old. She was 50. And, you know, I, I was basically raised by her. So it was like losing a mother. But she's very central to my work now. She's very central to my research now, especially when it comes to reproductive health care for women of color in Texas. You know, I grew up very working class. My mom worked for a grocery chain. My dad was a working touring musician with a cumbia band. And then later he had odd jobs, you know, um, when I was in high school. And we just really struggled. You know, this continued on into my adulthood. So it took me like 11 years to get, you know, my bachelor's degree. And then there was just this threshold that I crossed where writing sort of became a lifeboat and somehow I'm here. (laughs) Somehow I'm in LA and I'm pursuing a PhD and I never thought that would happen. That was beautiful. I love that you wandered in and out of the lives of your family members. I think having read your work and listened to some of your talks, their lives are incredibly, incredibly alive throughout your poems. And so it makes sense that the story of you is not just the story of you, but the story of the collective you. And I, I like this idea of the the threshold that you have crossed with your poetry, because I think that your poetry quite literally crosses some thresholds. I, I think I mentioned to you when I first reached out that I had the opportunity to hear you read at an event this summer sponsored by the Ashland MFA program. I was struck again and again by your profound ability to reach across the physical boundaries of the Zoom room and grab listeners in their heart and chest and throat. And so then as I learned more about your story, about the literal borders your family crossed, about the more figurative borders your poetry transcends, I couldn't help but think that it wasn't an accident. I assume this is intentional, but when you write your when you write your poems, how do borders manifest themselves in your work and these divisions? How do they come about? Yeah, um, that's actually a great question because, you know, when I started, I mean, I I was just looking through this old sketchbook from high school. I've been writing poems since I was 12, 13 years old. And, you know, they're they're just like bad. I would (laughs) love to hear one of those poems. (laughs) I would pay good money to hear one of those poems. I might, you know, like release a few on the Instagram. I gave up that dream because, you know, when you grow up with a musician father and you see the kind of cost a creative life enacts on a family, on a body, you know, on, on security, you feel like a creative life isn't for you. And then I ended up in creative writing classes to, you know, meet my English requirements. And then I ended up in poetry classes. And then, then, you know, I was like, okay, maybe I'll apply to an MFA. And I got into almost every program. That sounds like a brag. I'm not bragging. It was like, it was more like a path. It's more like a path was opened for me, like a path that I needed to go down. And when I got to graduate school, the imposter syndrome was so intense that I, I you know, I, I, my focus was fiction, but the critique was always like, what is the plot? The sentences are great. What is the plot? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. And so I ended up working with um, someone I still consider my mentor and friend, um, Ruth Ellen Coker, just a, an incredible poet in her own right. 
I would write these little poems that were just prose because I didn't feel confident enough to lineate even. And she was like, yeah, you're, you're hiding. I don't know why you just don't think you can lineate. I, I, you can't turn in any prose poems anymore. <laughs> I was like, oh, no. <laughs> she totally called me out. With her, you know, I ended up reading all of these poetry books and, and finding poets like Eduardo Corral and Don Lindy Martin and, you know, these poets of color that, like, were writing about things that I could recognize. And, you know, like, when I started writing, I agreed that the prose poem was not brave. And so I was like, how, how can I be brave like these poets are brave? And so I started creating these, like, little visual pockets. Um, you know, I was really inspired by you know, the Black arts movement, you know, these experimental poets who were sort of challenging these established forms, you know. And so I would write a sonnet and then I would condense it into a little square or I would write a sestina and condense it into a little square and then edit out so that the structure and the repetition, the rhythm of, you know, a sestina was there, but there were all of these pieces missing because that's my education, right? Like I don't have this Harvard education. I don't have this lineage. I have to kind of take these piecemeal. And so these like little squares emerged. And I was just like, this makes sense to me because the voice, what I was trying to do visually on the, on the page was like compress the voice or like make it feel small, like, or like confined in some way. And that was how I ended up writing assimilation rooms. You know, I was like, these, these are all connected. These are all little fragments or shards of memory that hurt, that were these moments of like cultural estrangement that were represented in this little box, this little room, this little, I don't know, kilobyte or something of memory that can't be erased, but everything else is erased around it. That's kind of what my poems are about. This inability to remember and so creating paths back into memory using a language that's embodied because my body remembers when I can't and so I access it through you know this this kind of poetic somatic exercise this poetic dreaming so yeah I guess the border that's being crossed all the time is is you know a neurological one too like why can't I remember this word? Why can't I remember this song? What is it What is it about this scene that sticks with me? So yeah, I hope that sort of answers the question somewhat. <laughs> Whether it answers the question or not matters to me not at all. I thought this was beautiful and so much to unpack within there because anyone in a family is brought up in the family mythology, whatever that is, you know, whatever... It, Part of being in a family means you know the history that you're taught about your family. But in your case, your family exists on two sides of this of this border. You have family in a place that they cannot go back to, or that they're leaving behind. So home home was in both two places and in in no places, right? I, I found again and again there's a longing in this book, and I'm not sure if you're longing for anything or your your narrator is longing for anything she's ever known before. And I actually understand that too, though my family is not your family. I understand a longing to be part of that history that the family tells you you're from, but you don't feel a part of anybody. You know, my mother is a 
full-blooded Italian woman from many Italian women who came before. You know, I, I grew up wanting to feel part of that, wanting to, to know what that was like, but also knowing that I wasn't, something about me wasn't right with that, right? It didn't look like they looked, it didn't talk, and to get, to become educated, right? To follow the paths school tells us to follow is to leave behind that family that you want desperately to to connect with and you're they want you to become educated but they're pushing you away from what you wanted to be i thought there were some some incredibly gorgeous lines and rather than just talk about the poetry i think we should let if you don't mind can we hear so i thought we could look at on my book i think we're looking at the same thing on my book it's page 36 the assimilation progress report. And maybe mm-hmm. for folks who haven't read the first part of this, maybe give us some background and then I'd love to just hear it in your voice. Yeah, I think I'll actually do a simulation progress report and the one that follows because they're actually, they're kind of companion pieces and I'll talk about how in a second. But um, this sequence is um, called Assimilation Rooms and each poem is what I imagine to be like a room in the sort of abandoned institutional building that is my memory of childhood and adolescence and what these little rooms mean. So like this first one is like this daycare room where these kids, you know, locked me in a closet and I didn't know much English at the time. You know, the second is this like, you know, choir performance at a bank. Next one is a locker room. And it just goes on and on until we get to this blank. There's a blank where you expect a poem to be. And then in the footnote, you get all of this medical language that forms this palimpsest, this language that's, that's on top of each other. And it's the same footnote over and over again about, you know, essentially acculturation trauma and, you know, um, behaviors that emerge from that trauma. And then the companion piece to that, you know, to this blank where a memory should be is, you know, this this point where I get arrested in front of my mom um, in a principal's office for something I didn't do. If you don't mind, let's hear some of it. Assimilation progress report. Jim, learn white girl nipples are your erotic shame. The only body you long for is hers, shotgun, past the smoke in the locker room, shower, run for hours, even when they throw rocks at your head because they found out you're a dyke. Physics, learn one, parallax, noun, the effect whereby an object appears to differ according to viewer position. Two, matter, noun, physical substance which occupies space in a fair or situation under consideration. The reason for distress or a problem. Three, the tricks of English, tricks of the trade. Texas history, learn a swindle, Mexico lost its Pacific gold-veined mountains to someone else's destiny, manifest, multiple choice, A, B, quiet, B, as paperwork, so that the cotillion may accept their blonde praise, their every award, C, hold hands with their white boys, D, raise your question, E, they'll escort you out, put you in basics with the other, F, not honors, material. 
English, on the road, white boys, aching oats are high literature, high and well-funded wandering while Papi is pulled over in that same desert, asked to show his papers before El Baile, learn Sal Paradise, loved a Mexican girl, but not enough to name her, and shh, Brandon from Wimbledon is talking, and he is three-story brilliant, ha ha ha, the voices that matter noun are the people who matter noun ivy bright and ivory government learn confederate flag is states rights on the test the double speak that makes right a boundless estate makes rightless the bound black body confederate flag stickers on mud spun jeep puka shelled the boys go riding protected as a plantation the founders holy signatures guarantee it you see a, their liberty. B, our terror. Work, learn to wipe that with a smile off your face from 3 p.m. to 1 a.m. Side work, then homework. Use the front computer to clock in and out. Otherwise, in the back room, his hand will hard between my legs again. The booth's empty after midnight. Expulsion, lighter, confiscated, alternative school, at morning, pat down, turn out pockets, white tongues, snitch, bag check, arms up, someone's head slammed on cement bricks, one, parallax, noun, the effect of position upon viewing an object, signature. Gulf Pines or Final Assimilation Room. Patient states, Honeysuckle wraps its heated bruise of bad news. A daughter bound by trouble is a wilder grief. Manifested bodily, oil-thick stars pour down their vines to overwhelm the mold-sprung house. Stormwater sags the walls as the ghost spine blossoms, berries of rot in her daughter's, daughter's brains, the girl doubled shares a heart with the pines, pulls the vein from the blade, antlered, illness made creature, punished into deformity, suspended mid-run, an animal body's instinct is to survive pain and flee its hunter. The girl attached to the thrashing creature is calm, nearly smiling. Another, another, another of us in a hospital room. And the footnote here is, um, so before I went to alternative school, which is uh, reflected in this assimilation progress report, I had a um, pretty long stint in essentially a psychiatric hospital designed kind of for these like bad kids. You know, in the 90s, tough love was like a big issue. And if your child just showed signs of puberty, there must be something wrong with them. And so this, this place was called Gulf Pines. And there's a commercial because, you know, it's a money-making enterprise that was on every, like, local channel. And it's this judge about to put on his robe, and he's in his, like, office lined with books. And you get the sense that he's, like, between cases, like truancy cases or, you know, whatever. And he says, when you talk to the parents of these juvenile offenders, you get the same old story. Johnny stayed out late. He was moody. He skipped school. But we figured he'd grow out of it. They don't. Recently, I found out about a family-oriented adolescent treatment program that's getting through to these kids, and it's often covered by health insurance. 
If you have a troubled teenager, don't wait until he gets here. Get help now. I wanted to contrast, you know, this, this voice of dissent, this voice of grief, this like almost hyper-feminine rendering of confusion and grief and, you know, just, just feeling powerless, you know, with this just like really glib, masculine, authoritative voice. It's that word parallax in your second stanza here, the effect whereby an object appears to differ according to viewer position. That word parallax haunted me throughout this. The idea that what you see is not necessarily what I see. What both of us see is not actually necessarily what something is. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. And so you were viewed as an at-risk juvenile. What did they think that you were at risk of? I was definitely rebellious. I think I was, I, I was, you know, sort of dealing with my own grief, but no one knew really or, or thought that kids could grieve in the way that, like, we understand trauma now and have, you know, trauma-informed responses at schools. I couldn't be in school. Obviously, it was, like, the most violent place for me to be. So, of course, I skipped school. Like, of course, I found other kids who were grieving in their own ways, who were queer or had lost a parent or, you know, just had like other shit going on. And we smoked cigarettes. I I never like really got into any of like the drug use or anything like that. My vice was like cigarette smoking and, and coffee and, you know, staying out late. And just those, those actions alone combined with my gender and, you know, this constructed race of, you know, the way Mexican is viewed in Texas is its own construct because it's so close to the border. I think, you know, Arizona has like a similar way of constructing Mexican Latin American people. It's like this whole other identity that if being a person of color makes you feel like a guest everywhere else, you are highly suspicious, you know, if you are a Mexican person in, in white spaces. At risk became this label of control. It's not a label of concern. It's a label of control. This allows us to put you in a temporary building and put you in detention. This allows us to expel you. This allows us to put you in an alternative school where there are like these pre teachers and absolutely no curriculum because it's all mixed grades, all mixed, you know, and it's all students of color or poor, poor white students, you know? So yeah, at risk for what? I don't know. Institutional violence, really. I should have confessed this earlier in the talk. I actually spent most of my life 
suffering from what I would diagnose to be mild to moderate poetry phobia. I had lovely English teachers throughout my formative years, but our studies of poetry were like either the epic sonnets of dead white guys or even worse, they were like the secret handshake poems like about red wheelbarrows and white chickens and something depended on them, but it wasn't on the page. And you just, I don't know, it was like a riddle to unlock. And I felt like I did not have the key. So I would sort of sit on the curb outside of the poem and know that I was not its reader and I was not its intended. And I, this is me as as a white girl growing up in the Midwest. I felt outside of the poems that were given to me in a classroom did you feel this way? I had this just awful, awful English teacher, Mrs. Dozier, who everybody loved because, you know, I guess she was funny or something. But like, I desperately wanted to be a poet. I desperately wanted to join the literary magazine. I applied my freshman year and I didn't get in. I don't know how. Like, I was just like, I have all the qualifications. <laughs> like, please. <laughs> it was called Achilles Stylus, um, the Eagle's Pen because that was our mascot. And I remember just, again, like being totally extra and reading ahead and sometimes reading more by a particular poet or assigned things were like Field of Dreams with Kevin Costner, you know, just like this aggressively Americana, just a lot of Steinbeck and Kerouac. And, you know, I remember asking if I could read Toni Morrison the one book that I remember I was excited to read was The Bluest Eye, and it was on the reading list. And I asked if I could, it was on the reading list, and I asked if I could read Beloved or, you know, any other book that Toni Morrison had, had written because I loved The Bluest Eye so much. She was like, no, no, you need to stick to this. So I had to, like, read, like, The Graves of Wrath or something else. All of my papers were like C's and C pluses, which like I was just like so confused by because I'd only, I, I mean, English was like the, one of the only subjects I cared about and thus did well in. And every other teacher seemed to grade me as such, but she just had like this, I don't know, like this grudge or something. And the way I felt sort of left out is that like, I had this interest, I had this like, desire to write to like, you know, I was on the newspaper staff, but I, or I'm sorry, I was enrolled in journalism classes to qualify to be on the newspaper staff and applied and didn't get in. It was just this like very forcible barrier, this invisible social barrier that said, no, like literature is, I don't know, like it just, it just felt like it was closed to me. When I finally got to college, you know, I could only go to the University of Houston, which is, you know, where I grew up. I don't know if it's if it's by destiny or by accident, but the University of Houston has one of like the top creative writing programs. So I got a lot of the runoff and I just remember finally feeling like I could participate in a conversation. It was still like Raymond Carver and, you know, like all of this Americana, but when I had to drop out because I had to work and my car was repossessed and I had no way to get to school, I was just heartbroken because I felt like I finally had this, this inroad and then I couldn't go to school there anymore. My poetry phobia was more just like, who would enforce the gate and not being able to figure out why, not being able to figure out why like 
I would go up to someone at like, you know, a reading or something and like, they just like would be so chilly. It just never felt accessible to me, no matter how much I read. Like I got a job at a bookstore just so that I could like read and like be good enough to hang out with these people. Uh, so I, I work in high school English. And so in the decades that I've been in the classroom, I have actually been glad to see that it's not fast enough, but standard curriculum is changing. So in the early years of my teaching career, I would have taught, what's the short Steinbeck that everybody reads? Of Mice and Men, right? It would have been on the reading list and I would have thoughtlessly taught it. Not thoughtlessly, but I would have done the, you know, oh, understand the friendship and the bunnies and the mice. And 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 we would have we would have gotten a little bit out of it. But never in a million years would I teach of mice and men today because of the loaded way in which students of color would experience that book, in the loaded way, and in fact, the triggered way that women, that women in my classroom would experience that book. We could, we could teach that later to a group of students who want to experience a, a kind of American quote-unquote classic that, that was and, and, and the problematic text, but not to a group of 15 or 16-year-old kids. I would never teach that book. But that's indoctrination. It's, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. For many, but for many <laughs> years, that was that was the sophomore book. And then we had enough copies for everyone. And I handed that out. And I'm glad to see people's eyes opening. I'm glad to see the bluest eye and Sula and Beloved. I'm glad to see texts creeping their way into the canon, but certainly not fast enough. And what you're talking about, the um the gateways and the gatekeepers, we've had conversations in high schools lately about tracking and the damage that does when we separate kids early on and who can get into those honors classes, who can get into the journalism. The idea being that anybody who wants to, anybody who, any child who says, please, I would like to learn about that, the answer should be yes, again and again and again, because any studies that you look at with tracking breakdown abysmally by race, by class. It's it's grotesque. And now we look at that and 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 no more. Any child who self-selects who wants to write for the newspaper, who wants to write for the Eagle's pen, what was it called? The Eagle's Yeah, it was a key life stylist, the <laughs> <Yeah>. Eagle's pen. <laughs> Any child who steps forward and says, I have these things to say, can I share my voice? I, I do see that Again and again, kids are welcomed now in ways that, that again, there were those gatekeepers back in the day. I heard you say once that as a society, we don't place enough value on the work that artists do, right? I mean, I, I think sometimes it might be because we don't often see what that work is. You know, like I can see a building an architect puts up or I can drive across a bridge. But the work of the work of poetry often is sort of invisible to folks, but I know that it's there. Can you make a case for the importance of the arts and the work <laughs> of the artist? Yeah, I would love to. So, um, you know, I, I did a craft talk recently and I was just like, oh my gosh, they're gonna, they're gonna say, you know what, never mind. <laughs> because <laughs> at the time I was really into video games. It was, you know, something I, I'd never really explored before. And during the pandemic, you know, there's just shit to do. And I ran out of 
books and I, I like your attention span after a while during the pandemic, you know, you just like can't take in any more books after a while. And my brother had brought his PS4. He came to live with me, you know, temporarily to help out while I did my exams, you know, help out with my son and all this stuff. And he brought his PS4 with him and he was like, dog, you need to try Skyrim because I was like grieving the end of Game of Thrones. And I was just, <laughs> I needed my fantasy fix. And I became like really obsessed. And I remember thinking like, there are poets writing for Skyrim because like one of the first quests that you do, you know, you, you are the dragonborn and you have to go to the throat of the world to meet with these monks. And, you know, the place where this like cataclysm happened, spoiler, is called the time wound. And you have to like go to the skyborn altar to like, and it's just like all these like really beautiful, like poetic images and like just these like narrative surprises, like even just like the names of like, you know, the potions and the the weapons. And that happened over and over again. You know, I, I played Assassin's Creed. I played The Witcher. The Witcher, I'm still obsessed with The Witcher. I'm, I'm actually writing about The Witcher right now. <laughs> and the poet Keith Wilson was like, you you have to play Dragon Age Inquisition. Like, and, the, and you have to tell me who you romance. You know? <laughs> and I was like, okay. So I romanced everyone because I didn't want to get it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and the last one uh, was this elven character named Solus, who was like so annoying that I was like not interested. And then he was, it was like the most intense romance. And at the end, you, you see him and, you know, your character is like interrogating him, you know, from this place of heartbreak. And the way he speaks back to you is an iams. And like, if, if you have read a sonnet, if you have read, if you know anything about scansion, if you have that ear, you can hear like, like you can hear it. And so I feel like if, if you are interested in writing stories, are interested in writing poems, but your parents want you to pursue something practical. This is something that my, my brother, who's this really brilliant musician, like just out of this world, he can play every instrument and it's like nothing to him. You know, it's like just melting butter in his hands. He's going for a computer science degree and like forcing himself to like learn calculus. And he's 25 and he's only gotten his associate's degree because he can't go to college. Right. So he's, he's just doing this through community college. And I'm like, why don't you try music? And it's, it's the same thing. He's like, well, you know, when you watch dad, if we had more faith in art being able to sustain us, what could kids who, who have never known financial security, who have seen their parents struggle, who have experienced financial insecurity in any way, housing insecurity, whatever, if the arts were a viable career path that were able to sustain you, what could be possible? So I, I guess maybe that's my, that's the way that I want to defend the arts is if art was able to open up a path for me late in life, but still, you know, open up that path. Most people will not ever be able to, like my brother will probably never be able to play music professionally. I don't know, just, just giving, giving the arts, you know, more credence in our culture would just solve so many more problems. You know, I always assign Poetry is Not a Luxury by Audre Lorde to my, to my students. And, you know, it's just this incredible essay about 
how poetry, you know, we see it as this like, I don't know, this like parlor thing that Victorians shared and it's like out of style and it doesn't have a, a utility and it, it, it really does. You know, it's sometimes the only way our language, suppressed language, can be heard, right? And it emerges, you know, in hip hop, it emerges, you know, in all, all kinds of ways that maybe aren't poetry per se. And I mean, just like looking at poets now, you know, like poets who are working now, like Denez Smith and, you know, like Hanif Abdurraqib and, you know, like Tommy Pico, these poets are, are changing the world. So if that's not a case for the arts, then I don't know what is because. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a fantastic case for the arts. Holding space and holding truth and being, you're, I mean, you're, you're right about Hanif, right? Being warriors for social justice and and shining a light on the kinds of things that we have hidden in the dark. And we've got poets doing that. And I'm, I'm love that Audre Lorde essay. That's great. Did you ever want to be anything else when you grew up besides a poet? So, you know, I come from a family of musicians, not just my dad, but like all my uncles, they have this, you know, all of these bands They used to be called no the Nevada band. And now it's super mix. Anyway, I really wanted to be a pop star. I wanted to be a singer. When I would go to my dad's band practice, he said that I would like dance to all the music they were playing. And I would do the caterpillar on the dance floor. <laughs> I was a very intrepid child. I, too, went through an embarrassing caterpillar phase. I, I think it was important for all of us to be able to just do that. I once did that in a nun costume. I don't, don't entirely remember the context, but oh, I don't man. think there's We're, any video. Yeah, we would have been friends. We would have been friends for sure. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I could talk to you all day, but I'm not allowed to. So I have to do a closing introduction. We always like to close with things we probably should have talked about at the beginning to get these, like, final snapshots. So these are just multiple choice. All right, multiple choice. Dogs or cats? Dogs. Wolves. Wolves. Ooh. Yeah, dire wolves. I mean, you know, a wolf, ancestors all the way. Coffee or tea? Coffee only. Mountains or beach? I mean, I live in California. Can we do both? I, I mean, both exist. They they do. I always found it so strange when I lived in California that I would be in beach weather and have to go to the mountains. And I don't know where my gloves are. <laughs> where's my Where's my yeah. wool hat? It was <laughs> such a. You really had to. I don't know. I, I wasn't good at keeping track of my mittens in the, those eighty degree days. But yeah, you do kind of have both there, don't you? If I had to choose beach, but you know, I moved here to have both. <laughs> well, that is one of the excellent things about about that. Early bird or night owl? Night owl. Haiku or limericks? You know, I like the poet in me wants to say haiku, but like limerick is also it's just good fun and it's how people kind of arrive to poetry. It's like a working class kind of like let's make poetry fun and body. So, I'm just going to say limerick to change it up I love a little it. bit. But you're right, they are fun. Um, yeah. Are you a risk taker or are you the person who always knows where the Band-Aids are? Oh, I'm a risk taker. Yeah. And in fact, I, I never have an umbrella, never have the right size Band-Aid. <laughs> you know, yeah. Have you ever had a like a Wonder Woman Band-Aid for your son or like a fine? I, I feel like we always have, he probably, my son would probably like Spider-Man, but we've always got Wonder Woman, if I can find it, <laughs> at the bottom of my yeah. purse. For us, it's Black Widow, but yes. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> um, what's one of your go-to songs? Ooh. When my friends came 
recently, the poet Muriel Lung for her birthday. As I was getting ready, I played Black Cat by Janet Jackson. It's it's so underrated, but it's like her rock and roll Rhythm Nation like era. I can't remember if it's on Control or, or Rhythm Nation, but whew, that is a song. That is a guitar lick. It's very good. I'll have to listen to that again. I got very caught <laughs> up in the escapade. We we did the whole dance, mm. so um, I probably yeah. missed out on the Black Cat. But I could. I'll have to listen to that again. All right, what's a book or a movie that you love? Dirty Dancing. Right. I carried mm-hmm. a watermelon. Nobody puts a baby in a corner. I just, <laughs> I just rewatched that. I watched it for the first time. I have a 16-year-old daughter, and we were having a day. And and I was like, you know what you need right now? And we watched Dirty Dancing, her for the first time, me for the 400th <gasps> time. And it holds up, and I got to just see her fall in love. Oh my, she, With Johnny. She, oh, she was heartbroken I, to learn that Johnny is no such- more. such... It's such an incredible movie about class and, like, you know, choice, abortion rights, like, you know, the the liberatory practice or a praxis of, of, of dance, of learning your body, Black and Latinx music as the music of the working class. Like, and then, like, Patrick Swayze is in his prime. Like, he has never looked better and has never been so sexy. Like, it's just, it's so much. Um, what's your favorite ice cream? Oh, I think I'm, oh, you know what? Actually, recently, coconut ice cream, but like the Mexican paleta kind, I'm like really addicted to those. Oh, that sounds nice. Mm-hmm. All right, and then last one, if we were to take a picture of you, happy, joyful, doing something you love, what would we see you doing? Oh, I'd probably be with my son on a roller coaster. My favorite thing is just like taking pictures of his face while we're on a roller coaster because he's so worried about it before we get on. And then when we're on, he's just like having the best time. Sweet angel. Yeah. Aww. So any any ride with my son. <laughs> That's a great image. I love that. Ah, <laughs> so great. I, I also, I have a just turned nine-year-old. So we are also in that roller coaster zone where like everything he tries, <laughs> he's, I don't know, I don't know. And then just... Reckless, wonderful abandon. That's a great yeah. feeling to share. The life, the life in their face, you know, it's great. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, well, Vanessa and Helica Villarreal, thank you so much for being here, for helping us cross boundaries between truth and mythology, between <laughs> love and loss, between what we're, the stories we're told about ourselves and then what we know to be true. I'm I'm, again, haunted by many of your poems. And for for folks, if I haven't said again, it's the book that I'm looking at is Beast Meridian. We will link to that on the show notes and and other poems of Vanessa so you can really see them. To anybody who's out there, we're listening. We're wishing you love and light wherever this day takes you. And until next time, be good to yourselves, be good to one another, and we'll see you again soon on this wild and precious journey. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Gerardo Orlando and Michael D'Aloya. Producer Sarah Wilgrube and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.
Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional book, book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy, happy reading! reading.